like to request your attention. The Buddhist contemplative vision of a path um, could be in very, very simple ways spoken of as, as such. When the West is famous for having identified an individual as the protagonist of a path, the protagonist of a life, uh, forces and situations unfolding in the duration of a lifetime, then the East is famous for having tried to find a way to get the perspective not on the content of that life, not the protagonist's story, but on how that protagonist comes to be there in the first place. If you want to turn this into some a geometric image, then the, hori- the horizontal of the, the Western's preoccupation with the individual, his or her life, and the, the unfolding of what's happening in that life in time, particularly within a lifetime. This is a, a powerful statement Western thinking, Western philosophy, Western psychology, have been making. That's clearly our preoccupation here in the West. The world of that individual, the unfolding of its story, and the actualization of the forces that come around, that come into play in a lifetime. Now the particularly Buddhist contemplative tradition takes a very different view, and in many ways you could say this is a vertical axis, and it tries not to look at the story, it tries to look at how come does this protagonist of the story come into being? Can we get a perspective, not on the story that's going on, but can we get a perspective on how this experiencer is construed? This is hard work. This is not easy because our habitual focus of attention is obviously the story. It is the content of my life. It is the content of my experience. It is the content of my mind that I keep engaging with rather than the dynamic of this mind. So the Eastern contemplative introspective tradition is insistent that while it is uh, valid to be preoccupied with the story, you know, we do need to ask what we do with our strength, what we do with our choices, what we do with our sensitivity, what we do with our gifts and virtues. We do need to ask ourselves that. Absolutely. I see no way around this. You know, this is your life, and if you're not going to take responsibility for it, if you're not going to make the choices, and if you're not willing to buck up for the, the blunders and uh, the graces you know, that fall into your lap, then nobody else will. There's no doubt in my mind that this is absolutely indispensable. At the same time, this is only part of the thing. The other part is, how do I get a perspective on this apparent solid creature, that experience, that protagonist of this story? How do I get a perspective on this? And the only way to get a perspective of this, onto this, is by letting go of the story. So much of contemplative mission is simple. 
shifting focus and emphasis and preoccupation and attachment to from content to process. How do I get out of the story and how do I get a bigger picture on the place the story seems to be taking? Where this story is being interpreted from? Who construes the subject of experience? How this construction takes place? This is more difficult than getting lost in the story. Getting lost in the story is important. It's important for revolutions. It's important for responsibility. It's important for reconciling with freedom that I have and learning to understand that this freedom has something to do with responsibility. That I don't get a single insight without a corresponding responsibility coming along with that insight. I do not get to understand things without any duty to live that understanding in responsible, in heartfelt, in compassionate, in insightful ways. So that is important. And yet, it is also important to understand that much of what I take so personal, what I identify with so much, what I get so passionate about, is actually not really damn personal, you know, it's damn universal. I'm just one of them. No thought in my mind has not been thought by anybody else. All thoughts are totally promiscuous, you know. The idea that I actually, my pain somehow is more relevant than your pain or somebody else's pain I may not know, is a weird thought. You know, we all experience this. There's a we all are born, we all have wishes, ambitions, we all have needs, things go wrong for all of us. Everybody has a childhood to survive. Everybody, you know, knows what fear is. And there's something profoundly universal at that. Even in with the, when we die, you know, even then you will not be alone. Quite a number of people will die with you exactly in that second on this planet. So even some of our most dramatic transitions, um, we're not really truly alone. So there is a profoundly universal dimension in our experience, which when we are in our personality mode, we seem to tacitly screen out. You know, Finding a gray hair on your head, and this is a personal insult. I am aging. You know, I of all beings somehow. There's something weird about this, isn't it? Highly weird. So there's a perspective, a, pr- a proportion that has to be established between the responsibility of being the stewards of energies that unfold within a lifetime, being highly specific. You know, you're all totally, unmistakably specific. We do not lose specificity, particularity. We do not even lose individuality through a teaching of not self. Teaching of not-self just means it's not lasting and it doesn't belong to you. You can't own it and freeze it and fix it. But it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. It is happening. You know, All of us, we're quite individual and unmistakable. The people who have touched my life, I can name. These are very specific people. One of them had a grey, big Spanish moustache. Another one had a bald head. The third one had a lovely Thai accent when he spoke English. You know, they all are very specific people. 
And they touched me in their own specific ways. They had a specific relationship to me. They were there for me in some really specific and particular way. They didn't just kind of generically dispense Buddhist wisdom or so. All things are impermanent. No, they were willing to actually sit down with me and hold a specific relationship. And that's what made it possible for me to somehow join the boat. So the specificity in our life is not the opposite of the universality in our lives. We don't experience bland, generic life situations. Within those highly specific life situations, universal patterns begin to emerge. But this not doesn't just feel personal, what's happening. It is actually quite individual and particular and specific. There's a double truth there. Yes, pain is universal. Everybody is going to go through it. And the, the specificity of my knee pain is also real. It's quite real. And it's necessary to bring this somehow together. Yeah? The vertical that speaks of how this subject is construed how this protagonist seems to create itself out of sensory experience and an identification with this and the divisive consciousness. And suddenly there's somebody in there that experiences the world out there. Huh? And the other dimension, namely that this life unfolds in time. And because the time is limited and because of attention is limited, certain things are more important than others. And it's crucial that in the light of these finite and limited uh, commodities, I am making good choices. Pragmatic choices, viable choices, ethical choices, choices that give happiness, choices that create meaning, choices that um, heighten my possibility for contentment, choices in which I tell myself a story. Yeah, we all tell ourselves stories. And the idea is not to get out of the story. That's not at all the idea. The idea is to make sure that you can start to re reclaim authorship in that story. You want to make sure that this is a good story you're telling yourself. In a good story, you can play along. In a good story, you matter. In a good story, you have influence. In a good story, you know, even if big things happen, you can grow. So the idea is not to get out of the story into some safe place. The idea is to learn to tell yourself a better story than the ones you know are not taking a good end. And we've been telling each other long enough. So meditation is an attempt to establish a relationship, first of all, with the patterns that act out, with your conditioning. It's also a method to make the mind still and to establish some, inject some reality into that relationship. But fundamentally you want to get in touch with the pattern that you discern in, your, in the functioning of your mind. It is the functioning of this mind that will determine a lot more about your happiness than what you actually get in your life. Human beings can be remarkably happy under dire circumstances and they can be remarkably miserable under the most privileged circumstances. I I'm sure you have verified and witnessed that yourself. I've been remarkably miserable in some highly privileged places. 
And I have found moments of freedom and space in places I did not uh, expect because the outside circumstances were harsh. So the capacity for our freedom, the capacity for our happiness and awakening are directly due to our capacity to get in relationship with the story that we are already telling and to start modulating that story, understanding what's taking place, reframing, transforming, and finally freeing, freeing ourselves, seeing possible stories without having to engage them. But first of all, we need to make sure that the story we tell ourselves is a story in which things can take a good end, in, in which we are capable of having influence, in which we matter, in which we don't repeat stuff that makes us miserable and unhappy and ineffective. So when you do meet your own story, and I'm pretty sure you can't really avoid this under the given circumstances, uh, then <clears throat> don't sigh, don't groan, don't lament. Be curious. Whatever happens to you here is of great importance because it tells you something about the story that plays itself out in your life. If you're willing to engage with that story, your chances to have a say in that story are a lot bigger than if you're trying to just sit here and wait till that story is over or till you go into the right story, till you get the good story, till all these bad stories stop and finally you get the real story. This is not a very effective way of reclaiming authorship. So I would encourage you to take heart in whatever your mind offers as conditions to be engaged with. Take up the offer. You know, play the game. Be as savvy, be as smart, be as compassionate as you can. Take heart from the Buddha. Take heart from Prajnaparamita. Take heart from the deities. Take heart from the the grandees of our traditions. Um, be inspired by their struggle. Don't be inspired by the result of their struggle. Be inspired how they looked when they were struggling. When Milarepa was still building towers, although it didn't really make much sense to him. When Marpa lost his son. When Ananda lost his friend Sariputta. When, um, you know, there's many, many people and connect with them, not how they looked when everything was done and dusted, but uh, how they looked when they were in the midst of their struggle. I often think, how must the Buddha have felt, you know, after his five companions have left him? He's in his mid-thirties, he's given up what you can give up, and he clearly hadn't found freedom. Yeah. How must he have felt? A 35-year-old governor's son, with a, with a wife and a child somewhere, uh, left behind, sitting there, lost, left by his last few friends, and not having anything in his hands. Yeah, he must have felt a failure. I think he must have felt a failure. In his mid-thirties, he must have felt a failure. He didn't gut it, you know. He put in so much effort, so much energy, so much renunciation. And he must have felt alone in this, because everybody was telling him, Either you're doing well, why don't you take my school? <laughs> or a little before that, they told him, just, just do what I, what I did, you know, become a governor, look after the country, be a proud Sakyan. 
Or they told them, you're our best ascetic. We, have, we expect great things from you. We stay around till your realization kicks in and then we're going to follow you and be the first of your disciples. They all told him this sort of thing. And something of that must have been quite convincing. Must have been quite convincing staying home and becoming a governor's son and joining his dad in his uh, civic duties. Must have been quite convincing if some of your teachers start telling you that you basically have mastered what they have mastered and whether you weren't willing to help them look after their disciples. Must have been quite tempting to do so. Or the other one who offered him his school said, well, you'd not, you do better than I. Why don't you look after them? Must have been quite tempting. Must have been quite tempting to be the, the sort of the primus inter pares of a, a bunch of dedicated ascetics who look up to you and think, think of you as their best. You know, the warm glow of peer group appreciation must have felt quite good. And he walked out on all of this. He walked out on all of this and it must have felt lonely. And he must have had doubts about this. We think of him as the glorious Tathagata, fully awakened, thus come, thus gone. But actually, uh, I think of him how he must have felt when he didn't have it all in his hand. When he just hankered back of what he left behind. The safety, the comforts, the appreciation, the connectedness. And yet, what we sit here because he didn't do all this. We sit here somehow because he, bra- he braced all this. He breasted all the loneliness. The praise that uh, was there to allure him into a role that would have stopped him from doing what he ended up doing finally. And I take heart when I think how he must have felt. So consider, whoever are your teachers, whoever are your inspirations, don't just think of them basking in the glory of their realizations. Think of them when they were struggling. How did they feel? How did Ajahn Chah feel when he realized after a few years in monastic life that where he was didn't really cut it and he needed to go and find other places, other teachers? Ajahn Man, who ran away after they gave him Wat Chedi Luang to look after. This is the biggest temple in uh, Chiang Mai. Wonderful old six, seven hundred year old temple. Yeah. Nowadays, this act of him chickening out basically is is considered a you know, heroic deed of the true contemplative, uh, not falling for the snares of administrative um, duty and the the snares of ecclesiastical honor, yeah? but they're instead dedicated to single-minded contemplative inquiry, leaving for the forests and the mountains of Qingdao again. In his days, this was just, you know, this was considered reckless. He, he was just chickening out of responsibility. This was not a heroic deed. What well, the forest tradition now lords is an iconic gesture of the true determined contemplative was basically deemed to be uh, an irresponsible man, not living up to his responsibilities, not 
being given a, a great and honorable duty and proving himself not worthy of that. <laughs> yeah. the, t- the assessment of the time changes. Yeah. So, um, what he felt, I don't know. But I can only surmise that he must have had the occasional doubt, otherwise he wouldn't have... Well, if he hadn't been completely freed, he probably would have taken this job and felt, okay, if I am so free, I can handle this job. But he must have felt, uh, no, no, this is crushing me. This is, this is not my, my calling. And I would expect there, have to be, there, ha- there, there to have been some doubt, not just about the validity of this duty, but also about uh, the depth of his own realization. So consider, the people who are inspiring to you, consider them before they had achieved, realized, manifested what you may be inspired by. Envision their struggles. Envision how they held their fears, how they met their inner demons, how they confronted boredom, loneliness, lack of energy, illness maybe. Establishing a relationship to your story begins with establishing a relationship to your breath. So let us become more specific in how you relate to the experience of breathing. As you will have heard me say, I believe such a relationship is the crucial ingredient in meditative, in the meditative pursuit. It's like in all relationship, attunement is crucial. You're not just doing one thing in a relationship. If it is a good relationship, a deep, a profound, a committed relationship, then you will learn to attune to differing tones in that relationship. Sometimes the moment is there to be frivolous, cheeky, and uh, have fun, and sometimes the moment will be to take heart and be deep and honest and say things that may not be flattering. And sometimes there may be a time when you just relish in the goodness that's happening between you and your friend. All of these are correct, all of these are necessary, all of these are right, and all of these are different, and it will be you who have has to tune to what is needed now. So, for those of you who have arrived, it is necessary that you learn to make your mind still and establish your relationship to that breath. Now, our relationships usually are established in analogy to our sense functions. So, we establish relationships of seeing, of hearing, of tasting, of touching, of smelling. Relationships of thinking. It's very simple. We relate to things in terms of our senses, and thus it makes sense that we uh, use our sense functions as an analogy to establishing a relationship. So we begin to observe things, yeah? That means we establish a relationship via seeing. We get in touch with things. That means we establish a relationship via our tactile sense. We sniff something out, yeah? Uh, That means we establish an olfactory relationship, yeah? We get a taste of something. We establish a gustatory relationship, yeah? Our language speaks of this type of relationships. Now it is important 
that you learn what kind of relationship you establish to your breath. Many of us have learned to establish a relationship to our own experience as seers, as witnesses, as observers. We gain perspective, we have insights, we, all this is a visual metaphor. Yeah? And before long, our relationship to ourselves is a, is a visual relationship. There are some advantages to this and some disadvantages. The advantage is it's spacious. Everything to do with our eye creates space. Yeah? We've developed our visual sense really dramatically. Human eyes wander. If you look at the uh, embryology, tells you this very clearly. The well, baby's eyes wander from the side to the front well, in uh, embryological development. And in many ways, as is much of embryology, we go through developmental stages in, in for human beings within the, this phase of a pregnancy. So, um, in some way, this develop of eyes moving to the front mirrors the. Uh, role of the eyes uh, uh, in development of human beings. Our eyes are in front and that means we, we can see less, less well what's behind us. Yeah. So our, our field of vision is diminished in some way. That means we're a, lo- a lot less safe to see what's, what's happening behind our backs. Yeah. But the advantage of having eyes close front means the convergence of what each eye sees is bigger. That means the depth vision is is increasing. So our visual sense is really dominant because we've made really much of getting depth out of our visual field. So that has meant that we have become increasingly more ocular creatures. Now that, uh, even before the iconic turn, this this has been a major issue in development of, of the human brain. We, we make much use of visual information. I think something around 95% of our information processed is visual. Um, and that also means that our relational patterns are highly structured by visual experience. Now, much of this makes sense, but for some things, you don't actually want more distance. You don't want more perspective. It doesn't help to have more... Uh, going away further so that you can see more clearly. For some things you actually need to get closer. You need to get in touch. You need to get a taste of. You need to stand in. So if we turn our relationship to breathing experience into essentially a visual experience, I see the breathing, I watch the mind, I observe my body or my belly, these are all visual activities. I may end up distancing myself subtly from this experience. Subtly, but consistently. And distance is something that is only useful for certain things. It's particularly useful for flooding emotions. Anger, fear, doubt. Um, Very useful to have some distance. But for many things, if I want to understand them, going away from them doesn't help. Screaming babies, you don't understand them better if you go away from them. They need something. They need another kind of engagement rather than you uh, calmly observing them from a safe distance. You understand the image. So it is important that you consider how you establish relationship to your own experience and particularly to the breathing. My suggestion is you try to get 
more in touch. You're using as an analogy for your relationship to the breath, a tactile metaphor. So feeling the breath, being with the breath, inhabiting the body. Um, you know. Consider five different questions that may help you get in touch with qualities of breathing. First one is, how deep does this breath go? What is the lowest area in which I can feel this breath when the breath enters the body? This area is not always the same. There is not a proper area for this, so please don't try to fix this somehow. But there will be a very specific place in your body where you right now feel the lower end of your breathing sensations. You know, sometimes this is just up here, maybe even up here, you know, just below your clavicula. Uh, sometimes this will be very deep in your pelvis and you can feel every breath going down there. So this would be a question that helps you establish a quality of your breathing. How deep does the breath go right now for me? The second question would be the rhythm. How fast is that rhythm? How regular is that rhythm? Is my in and my out breath of equal length or is it not? Again, there are no correct answers to this, but there are specific answers how it is right now for you. And getting to know this may be quite useful, may be helpful for you to establish a deeper intimacy with the experience of your breathing. Third question is, how vital is that breath? How much buoyancy is in it? Is it flaccid or is it um, full? Is it strong? Is it alive? So. Every movement of breath has some kind of has a tone, an energetic tone in it. Is this a full tone, or is this soft? Is it mushy, yeah, or not? So that would be a quality of breathing. How much springiness does it have right now? Another fourth question would be. What is the texture of my breathing? If I breathe in, is this a silky movement? If I breathe out, is this a silky movement? Is this jagged? Yeah. Does it have little kinks? Yeah. Very silky, cat fur until here, and then a kink, and then a little rasp at the end. Yeah. So you get a, a feel, a feel for the texture of your breathing movement. Is this hoarse? Is this smooth? Is this silky, or is this? as is some kind of graininess. And finally, a last question. How much resistance does this body put up when it has to do breathing? How much force is needed to fill these lungs? How much yielding or how much um, diffident is this body when it has to open to the breathing movement. Sometimes that differs quite a bit. It seems labored, hard work. Some of us feel that we can't trust that we squeeze all the air out. We need to make sure that everything goes out. Some of us feel we don't get enough. So if we don't suck, we're actually keep keep being undernourished by what we get. So we, we tend to emphasize one part of the breathing. Sometimes it feels as if I'm just sitting here being breathed by the universe. This is lovely. And sometimes it feels I'm really having to do it all on my own. Yeah? 
I have to suck in this air and press out this air and suck it in and press it out. And those things would be qualities that I can get to meet, I can get in touch with. And qualities not to establish some rightness, so not to uh, optimize, but actually simply qualities to make me more intimate with my experience of breathing. Since I do so much of this breathing, I have plenty of automatisms kicking in. And as you know, whenever something becomes automatic, our degree of awareness and sensitivity decreases. Yeah, that's the tragedy of automatisms, even useful automatisms. As soon as it's kind of automatic, we seem to take our attention back from it. So we're trying to get more attention into the breathing. We're trying to enliven our relationship to the breath. And those questions may help. Maybe not all of them. Don't make yourself mad with them. Don't, they're not to be asked constantly, but just throw them like a stone into a pond and then look. Look at the ripples and feel, does this question create a little space when I ask it? A little space in which I can get a little closer, a little more intimate with my breathing experience. Yeah? So depth, rhythm, tone, texture, resistance. And when you sit down, or when you stand up, or when you begin to walk, use the magic question. What's happening now? How does it feel? Can I enter into conscious relationship with this particular experience? Yeah? Good. Let's practice for a moment.
Good. I would like to see the people who have arrived last Sunday right now over in the council hall, all eight of you. Yeah? So please take uh, a restroom break and uh, come over there straight away. Um, preferably uh, with no teacups. It is better so. Yeah? See you in a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.